Welcome to Cow Talks. I'm Chris Pravat, Beef Cattle and Forage Economist at the University of Florida. And I am Marcelo Valau, Forage Extension Specialist with the University of Florida. And this is our podcast, where we dive deep into the main topics affecting livestock and forage production in the southeastern United States. From the mainstream media to new technologies straight from our research stations. From cattle prices to international trade. From our pastures and beyond. Join us on this journey as we tackle the main issues affecting our producers and the sustainability of our production systems. Thanks for joining us today. Um, Chris and I invited Ann and Cheryl to, to join us on our, on our live hour today to do the traditional cool season forage update. What we want to do today is get some updates from Ann on what's uh, available, what's in the market, what are the new recommendations uh, for cool season planting. And then Cheryl is going to talk on fertilization. And one more thing is that the updated recommendation list is published, the walk in the wild, walk in the wild side. Uh, the wildlife one is updated. We included Turkey. Also, there is some recommendations for Turkey. And what do you have to tell us today? What did you learn from your seed folks? Okay, so I, I mentioned earlier, it's um, th there's seed out there, and I'll talk a little bit about the problems in California and Oregon and how that impacts uh, ryegrass and the clovers. So let's let's start out with that. Uh, according to Smith Seed, and Smith Seed is the largest producer of just generic ryegrass, uh, they say they have ample uh, supplies. The, the question is, the ample supplies have not yet arrived yet, and I don't know when they're going to arrive yet in your local feed and seed stores. So that's a concern. Uh, clovers, uh, according to Smith, who also does the generic uh, crimson clover, there's ample seed production of crimson coming from California and from Oregon. The problem's going to be the red clover and any of the other kind of specialty clovers like arrowleaf that are going to be uh, limited. So I use a lot of red clover. Uh, prices are going to be very high. Actually, the prices they did think would be a little bit higher on crimson clover as well. So uh, plenty of crimson, but I guess uh, they're going to increase the prices into like the $30 a, a 50 pound bag um, uh, range. But having said that, it went up to like $60 a bag. And I wanna remind you, crimson in particular, but most of the clovers come pre-inoculated. And uh, in the case of crimson, you can buy raw, raw crimson and buy inoculant. And the seeds usually are very expensive because there's more actual viable seed in the bag. bag. Then there's inoculated that just has a fine uh, layer of rhizobium adhering to the seed coat. And then there's the coated. So when you get the coated, you have probably at least 30% less seed in the bag. So when you're buying or, or suggesting to folks about crimson, it really depends, or pricing will really depend on, on what is actually in that bag, how it's treated. Red clover comes pre-inoculated, uh, usually coated. Uh, arrowleaf clover has come raw in most years past. I haven't seen very much coated arrowleaf. Ball clover's always coated because it's very, very tiny, about the size of white clover seed, and it's gonna be very expensive this year because they've limited 
their production that comes out of Texas. Okay, then on the small grains end, not a lot of wheat, but that doesn't really affect us a lot because most people don't grow wheat unless they're some type of cover cropping operation and they're ensuring that uh, field for production. Uh, cereal rye, uh, Florida 401 is going to be in short supply. There's a lot of interest in malting uh, with 401 and our newest one, um, the uh, 405. So it's uh, 401 will be in short supply, but 104, which is now called Kelly Grazer 3, it had ample seed production up in uh, southern Tennessee, early um, to, uh, upper uh, Alabama. So that one should be okay. And Renz Brezzi, Elbon, Maton, Bonnell, all those, those are brought in from Oregon, I mean, from Oklahoma. And so as far as I know, seed production of Renz Brezzi is fine. I haven't really heard much about Elbon or Maton or Bonnell. And those are the later varieties. We don't usually recommend those. If you can't get uh, like a 401 for a real early rye, uh, you know, Kelly Grazer would be a very high yielding, longer season producing rye. And then a fallback is Friends of Brezzi. Okay. Um, and then on oats, there's plenty of legend oat. There's limited 720 oat. There's, uh, I think, pretty much ample horizon oat varieties other than the 720. So 720 would be the only one they wouldn't have a lot of. And the companies facing out 270, which for some reason has become very popular for forage, but it's actually an intermediate forage type. It's more of a grain type to me. And then the one I've always loved is um, Horizon 306 oat. And uh, it also is being phased out as, they, as the company phases in the 720. Uh, I, I loved uh, the, the, the uh, 306 because it was very, very leafy, kind of reminded me of some of the older Horizon varieties that were released. So that, that's um, pretty much it. Seed is varying, or I guess I should say triticale. Plenty of Tricale 342, 1143 is completely sold out. Merlin Max, which I think is the only other one we recommend, is being produced on the West Coast, too expensive to ship to the East Coast. And so um, they're not sending much and very poor production on surge, which we don't recommend anyway, because it's too late. So that's my roundup and I'll be ready to answer any questions. One, one thing I might want to just add, um, we've had five ranches around the state with pearl millet that came down with gray leaf spot. I've never seen gray leaf spot on a summer annual grass, which makes me concerned because then people overseed those fields or they go in, they're, they're till, they'll till that field because it's in an annual production and they'll put ryegrass. And so if we have a warm fall, so Cheryl could comment on that, but any, any which way, we'll have the inoculant there if you're following behind millet potentially. So that's pearl millet, with gray leaf spot. And if you're going in that same field with, with um, ryegrass, uh, beware. Uh, might wanna delay planting in a field that was heavily infected uh, with gray leaf spot on, on, on millet. Normally I would say with millet, you could graze it down in October and go right into a stale seed bed or, or sling it out or some people fly it on. But uh, this year, this is my first experience with gray leaf spot on, uh, on millet, on pearl millet. 
So I would think uh, what would slow the disease down would be colder nights, just keep the fungus from growing. But I will tell you that gray leaf spot likes cool, wet weather. So Cheryl might want to make a comment or one of you all might want to make a comment on weather conditions for the fall. If it's going to be dry, we'll be in a little bit better shape. Um, cereal rust on or crown rust on oats, we have pretty good resistance in some of the newer oat varieties. So that's the only other disease I worry about. Remind people when they fertilize, nitrogen may make the plants grow, but if they don't put a balanced fertilizer, they're going to run into some train wrecks with diseases. I have a comment regarding the diseases. Um, and I brought this up to you earlier, Ann, about the potential that maybe some of these fungal species are, and it's noted with several, that they are becoming more resistant to fungicides. And if we're overusing or misusing fungicides, that maybe we're getting a little more virulent and it's spreading into crops we don't typically see it on as well. I'm just curious about that. Right, so gray leaf spot is, uh, all, you know, also a turf grass issue, which, you know, turf grasses are sprayed a lot with fungicides to control it. But I, I don't know that that impacts us so much, but it, it could be changing the dynamics. There's no one here that I'm aware of in the Southeast that actually looks at host differentials or, or um, varietal changes in the uh, gray leaf spot arena. We do with rust. And we do with like Hessian fly, but gray leaf spot, you know, I've never, like I said, I've never seen it on a summer annual, but I'm concerned for the fall planting season. So just be aware. And if you have millet in your counties, you might want to just run by a field and take a look and see if it looks uh, healthy. The, the other thing, check to see if it's brown midrib or not, because uh, seeing more. In fact, uh, the one location in was actually brown midrib, the producer told me. So. Right. That's right. So it was um, Tiff Leaf 3, Exceed, and some of these BMR types and uh, one, one other. But they were, because um, uh, Tiff Leaf 3 is now off patent. So there's a, a hybrid. It's got a different name, but it's basically Tiff Leaf 3. But we had five locations different ranches, different varieties, all with severe gray leaf spot. You mentioned something about some issues of uh, 401 rye being okay. produced in Oklahoma and that's not 401. Right, okay, so there's a big demand on Florida 401 cereal rye. It's the earliest of all the small grains. It's used for windbreaks. A lot of vegetable operations use it for windbreak. It's also now being malted, I mentioned that, but uh, a lot of interest because of the cover cropping put 401 in the limelight. And that's what we have 405, which is rust resistant. 401 actually has rust, but 405 is gonna be uh, the same maturity. It was developed out of the, the 401, but it, we haven't placed it yet on the market. So what Marcella is referring to is there was so much interest in 401 that uh, they started growing it in, in, in Oklahoma. And when you shift to a different location like that and you make a, a harvest for a couple of years, you actually change the uh, maturity of the plant and essentially are developing a totally different variety. So I have to do a lot of grow outs for the seed commission to prove the genetics. And we do it mostly right now phenotypically and not with genomics. 
So uh, what we've seen with a lot of the Oklahoma 401 is it isn't. It looks like it's Renza Brezzi. Uh, it's later than the real 401. So my suggestion to you is always look at the source of your seed. Where is your seed being grown? And remember, most things out of Oklahoma and Texas are later. So even our oat varieties, and those are self-pollinated, so it's not like they're, they're changing their um, population. But um, most things produced in Oklahoma and in Texas will be later. And that's not what we need in Florida. We need something non-dormant, jumps out of the ground. We have mild winters. You know, we don't need it late competing with our summer perennials. We need it early when we have no summer perennials to graze or summer annuals. And I've got one question for you on cool season annual forage breeding. Um, obviously, the breeding program at the Noble Research Institute has changed a little. Is that going to impact some of the breeding lines um, that we potentially could like? Because even we use Elbon and and uh, some of the other ones in the southeast. I was just curious what your thoughts were on on that, and any update you could share with us. Well, Elbon and Mayton and Bonnell and, uh, you know, all those Oklahoma lines are not from Noble anymore. They're uh, maintained by the Oklahoma seed um, producers. So just like we have a Florida Foundation seed producers that once we turn over varieties, basically it's out of the hands of the breeder. Uh, as long as there's seed production in that state and the foundation oversees it, there'll be plenty of those varieties still in the market. So... Um... And one of the questions I got from producers recently um, is how early can we get those uh, small grains on the, on the ground? Uh, some people are, uh, there is a lot of need for forage and some people are willing to, to get a little earlier to try to, to get a better, um, uh, more forage during the winter early grazing. So how, how early can we go and what can we plant very early? You know, I say this all the time because we get this question every year. My concern isn't so much a calendar date as it is the growing conditions. If you're dry land, you need moisture. If it's uh, really hot and humid, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of root rot diseases, especially on something like cereal rye. So October 15th is when we normally recommend planting cool season forages, but it's just a calendar date and you gotta use a little common sense with it. If you're irrigated, you're probably in way better shape. Oats could be planted earlier. That was always oats selling point, but the oats selling point was you could plant in September, but then if you have barley yellow dwarf, if you have aphids transmitting barley yellow dwarf, like they come off of corn or they come off of other grasses, they go right onto those oats. So yeah, the oats get up, they get growing, then they get nailed with barley yellow dwarf. So my answer on that one is, if you're gonna plant oats early, make sure you have good field resistance to barley yellow dwarf. All our newer varieties have good resistance. And I have one quick question about some early oats. If you look at like uh, really old journals and like uh, really old extension publications from like early 1900s old. Uh, so maybe like 1900s to, you know, 1940. They talk about planting in late August, early September. Is it, was it a different type of oat? Like, or was it, was it a spring oat that they were kind of planting for fall? What, what, what's different now between, you know, 
where they were 80 years ago. And, and we're talking about planting really early. Most of the rust strains come from South America up through Mexico across the Gulf. It goes for ryegrass too. So what's happened is as, um, as we've developed varieties around the world, we've kind of narrowed down the germplasm base. Uh, now we have a lot more varieties out there that break down to different diseases. And then because of just you know sheer numbers of acres, uh, we have a lot of mutations with rust and the rust comes up, depends on the year, comes up from South America. And so we have been hampered with diseases like barley yellow dwarf also, but rust in particular. Um, and that's what's really pushed us to delay oat um, planting. But, you know, having said that, we've done some data planning work. And, uh, you know, if you get better field resistance to barley yellow dwarf and crown rust, uh, you could plant in September. But I think the rust populations, barley yellow dwarf issues have become greater. Aren't rust issues more later in its development than you get it early, early when it's establishing as well? Right. And the reason you're asking that, Cheryl, is because we, you always see it planted after October 15th. So rust would come on later when you start warming up in the spring, and that's why you see it then. But uh, if you plant early, it's not that the rust's not out there. It's just that the growing conditions, the cooler temperatures slows those rust uh, spores down and uh, probably also uh, air movement across uh, you know, the Gulf Stream and all. So we talked about how early, but how late are you comfortable with this going? How late, how late you can plant? Yeah, how late in terms of planting date? I have some theories, but I will tell you something from Auburn. Uh, one year we had such a horrible drought, probably before all of you were born, but I was around. And uh, Don Ball and I did a rescue mission and planted in February a bunch of different uh, cool season forages. And what we concluded was varieties that were super early, like Florida 401 rye and Legend Oat, Trical 342 of those uh, you know, different small grains. Those are the ones that you could actually plant in January and still make back your seed costs, fertilizer costs, and costs of planting. So, uh, and it became a rescue mission for folks who had a lot of cattle and had no hay left because we had a bad drought that year. We had, uh, then we had a lot of rain. We never could get things planted on time. We had a very, very tough year. So um, you can plant in January. In fact, the entire triticale and oat breeding program was planted in January because Ron Barnett had, I was just bio-sci, Ron had so many uh, wheat lines that we never got done planting all our wheat in through December. So oats never went into the ground and neither did, and triticale was even later, just out of sheer necessity because of timing. And so what we developed were very short season oat lines and very short season triticale lines, which in the end turned out to be to our benefit. So they're all kind of condensed. They grow fast in a short period of time and it's exactly what you need for Florida. And it also um, helped us without knowing that we were manipulating photo period because you're under short days in January when you plant and uh, the plants that did really well were the ones we selected. So those were less day length sensitive. 
So Cheryl, I was, I was taking a look here at the National Weather Services, the forecast for the, the three-month forecast from here into December. We know there is a possibility of some uh, La Nina year, which normally brings us uh, drier, drier weather. So it seems like until December, we're going to have higher temperatures, uh, but uh, equal chances of below or above average precipitation, but things will have greater chance of being below average later in the winter. So uh, what do you figure about that? And how would you think about your strategy for cool season for just planting in use, considering this scenario where we can plant early or maybe can plant at good time, even though temperatures are high, but we may face some dry weather yeah. midwinter. I, I, I think the rainfall is the key. And and a lot of places have gotten fairly good rain this year, or more than they typically have. So what you want to probably do is see if you have the kind of soil that will hold that moisture, or you have a water table that may be a, a little on the higher side, especially in the northeast part of the state, uh, where Tim is, and, and he might find water um, more than he would in the past, then, then he'll be okay. But um, other than that, I mean, if you don't have water, you can't grow anything, right? And especially ryegrass. And La Niña's tend to go drier. So if you're wondering if you do ryegrass versus some other options, you might look at the other options a little bit more. And our driest land, the rye, cereal rice, and uh, some of the legumes, large seeded legumes work the best in dry conditions. But um, this year, because of the wet and a lot of diseases, you, you probably want to wait longer and then just figure out i mean again you don't know what's going to happen until it happens right and with florida soils it's hard to know you know you're only three or four days away from a drought so um in terms of temperature i was mentioning earlier it, it doesn't have much of effect maybe it tends to be warmer but what we see at least in the northern half of the state right maybe not so much in the southern half is um we get hit by a super bad cold spell of one to three days and um, around late January, early February, and it's been warm all the way up till then. And so that's bad for citrus growers, which that's not why we're here, but also maybe some of the oats and other things that are a little more sensitive um, could get hit a little bit. But by that time, if you got your plants in when you were supposed to in October, November period, um, they should be old enough to, to take that and Ann can chime in if uh, she has some other thoughts on that. The only thing I'd add is if you're going to late plant, make sure you got your seed in hand because um, chances are a lot of the seed's going to sell out. It, it, bring, it brings a question that I was just in a BMP meeting earlier today and talking about promoting more cover crop use. And this is mainly on uh, cropland that's going to be grazed. Marcelo attended that meeting. In the case of cover crops, especially for grazing on, on row crop land, do you see, if they start really boosting up and start getting greater demand, do you see certain uh, varieties or certain material that's gonna become even more scarce and things we need to look out for in terms of prices and, and availability? All the early uh, varieties are gonna be the ones that'll be more desirable for cover cropping. They get up, like they, they're non-dormant. So they get up, get growing. That's the whole idea, protect the ground. And then, we really don't care if they're productive unless you're gonna graze it or cut it for hay. But if you're gonna leave it grow, you really need it up and growing very quickly 
And uh, if it freezes, who cares? Because it's still cover cropping, unless you're is keeping the soil protected and unless you're going to do something with it. And that's why I said the earlier varieties, what I'm hearing is people who are cover cropping are going to use early varieties. They're going to cut it for hay. They're going to get a little bit of regrowth and they don't care if it uh, freezes out. And having said that, the cheapest cover cropping that no one talks about would, and I'm not promoting the use of Roundup, but you know, you could just put ryegrass and then go back in. And I know, Cheryl, that there's the lilipathy, but if you were to plant ryegrass in, let's say, October, November, it'd be cheap. It'd get up, it'd protect the soil. If you're not looking for grazing or tonnage or, you know, that's not the, the focus, you could go in in February and you could just, you know, kill it with Roundup or let, if we get a cold uh, snap, let it freeze out. So some, case, some varieties could freeze out. I can, there's one called Shawashaba. And uh, then, you, then you'd have a cover crop there, just a standing cover. That's all you really need for cover yeah. cropping. I think that's, David's promoted that. If you have water, it, that'd be a good one. Yeah. It's, uh, well, actually it's um, North Georgia, Alabama and further north. They're using our early ployed and that's what variety of ryegrass. They're just letting it grow because it gets up and gets going. And then they just hit it with uh, Paraquat or they hit it with Roundup where they let it freeze out. And I thought, God, that's brilliant because that's way cheaper than any small grain's ever going to do for you. If it's just strictly cover cropping and you don't care about tonnage. In terms of grazing, I, you know, I really, as much as possible, people could throw some legumes in their mix. And I know it doesn't always seem to pan out for certain places. But again, if you, if you have the least bit interest or you think we have some growers that would be even a little bit interested, give Ann or, Ann or me a call or Marcelo and let's talk about some options because the benefit you see in both quality and being able to back off that nitrogen now, you really want to still put some nitrogen on in the beginning to get them going. I, I see disasters when you put zero nitrogen and you throw legumes in there. A lot of times it has a hard time getting going. But you get a little bit in there and it just really propels itself and keeps going. So, And there's so many options now. The larger seeded ones do better in terms of uh, drier soils because they have a they're more aggressive, get a root down deeper to get where there's a little more moisture than some of the small seeded types of options. So. Try to consider that when you're looking at um, things for fall planting. Sure. Can, can you name a few mixtures that would be interesting and also the nitrogen fertilization strategy for the mixture? Well, I'm, <laughs> I, I always tell Ann, I love the, I mean, vetch always does great, but I know a lot of people have problems or complaints about vetch. And, uh, but that, boy, that really does well. And, and so, I don't know if in terms of bloating or other issues that people have with vetch. I know it's not easy to cut if you wanted to cut something. Uh, Crimson's always a, an option and it's the, one of our earliest legumes. Um, but in terms of um, putting nitrogen out with it, um, depend, and really we do have IFAS recommendations, but depending on your soils and if you've had good nitrogen fertility in the summer in the summer grass, if it's overseeded, has been fairly dormant, it's gonna be dormant if it's an Argentine type. Um, you could probably get away with a little bit less nitrogen, but 40 to 60 pounds, I would put a one-time hit, but then you might not have to reapply 
um, through the rest of the season. Whereas if it's just grass, after each grazing event or after, after a couple grazing events, you might have to throw a little more nitrogen on there to get that grass back in, in lush again. So um, it's Would you not say, really size fit all, but. Yeah. Would you say two, three weeks, uh, three weeks after planting to get that's uh, 40 to 60 pounds? Get, give the chance for the, for the plants to be off the ground a little bit before. Applying. Yeah, if, if, you've, if you've got, uh, I, I go back and forth. Uh, if you've got really coarse, droughty soils um, and you think you're going to have a wet fall, then you might wait till you get something growing. Otherwise, I would put it out because more often than not, people put it out too late than not getting it out. So I, I worry about that a little bit more. But um. It's, it's preference more than not. I think Cheryl's right because you get the plants up and growing. And I used to think that you're really feeding the weeds while the, what you want to get established is getting established. But I, I would say don't, don't procrastinate. I'm terrible at it and I probably lose a lot of tonnage because of that. Cheryl comments on that nearly every year, how far behind I am because I'm always slow to get my fertilizer out in the fall. The other thing to remember is any of the ryegrasses, even early ployed, they really don't kick in till later. So something like that, you could, you know, be a, a little less, more slack on it in terms of how soon you get it out. But those small grains and even some of the clovers, you really got to get them out early. I wanted to add one little thing. I know Cheryl's a big vetch fan, but we did have an incident that Auburn University was looking into where they think that Vetch toxicity uh, killed some cattle in southern uh, Alabama. And then uh, I did have two cases of bloat, which I've never seen before in cattle, mm -hmm. where they were eating just straight white clover that had taken over a ryegrass white clover uh, pasture in North Florida. So, you know, when I think legume grass mixtures, you don't need a lot of legume, you know, less than 30% is probably advisable. When it starts getting really aggressive and out producing the grass, one, you're not getting the tonnage that you probably need to feed the livestock. You know, you're losing out ground on tonnage. But the other concern I have is maybe too high nitrates uh, in, the, in the forage. I mean, things that you need to think about. So remember in blends, uh, there needs to be a balance with less, I, I believe, less legume than grass. Those are good points. I've even uh, seen crimson clover that's shaded out and killed out bahia grass as the bahia came back in the spring, got wiped out. Is 30% so, a good target for the legume portion in the mix or, or below that? You know, I, we have some seeding rates for blends. Uh, you know, I, I can offer you some, depends on what you're trying to put together, but you know, the majority of the seed in the blend should be uh, a grass. And so, you know, rule of thumb, 100 to 120 pounds on uh, cereal uh, grains, uh, small grains, uh, 20 up to 25 pounds or so on ryegrass is, is good. And then, you know, clovers, you really you have lower seeding rates anyway. Use half seeding rates if you're going to put it in a blend. If you're going to use a multiple, uh, you know, several different legumes, you know, I'd maybe say a third or half of uh, a half of a seeding rate in a blend. So a quarter of the seeding yeah. rate. So about a quarter in terms of plants, about a quarter of the plants, maybe in terms of mass. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Right, because you don't need a lot of legume. You're not going to get the tonnage that you need to carry the livestock and fill the bellies. So regarding the veg toxicity, something I heard, actually I heard first time I heard was a agronomy meeting a couple of years ago. And there are some people reporting that, some people saying that's not a problem. I've seen a lot of hairy veg being grown and grazed in Brazil, and I've never heard that before there, but probably some could not be reported. There is uh, scientific reports of it happening, and it normally, normally relates to um, skin sensitivity. Muzzle especially can result in uh, some organ, more organ damage and laminitis and other things normally recovered after some times. Uh, I risk to say that that would be more concerning not having forage or not having good quality forage than, not ha- than the risk of toxicity with the vet, especially if you have it mixed with, uh, with grasses. And uh, the one, one point is important, vetch is very aggressive growing and it can take over and has a, has a, it forms a mat, it's an awesome, it's an awesome cover crop. Uh, and, it re- and it recedes, Marcelo, it's a yeah. pretty good reseeder. Yeah. yeah, we have a lot of volunteer vetch types in our <laughs> North Florida fields. Yeah, uh, hairy, does hairy vetch recedes also or just common vetch? Nope, recedes. Okay. We actually have uh, Cahaba white that was grown. Mm-hmm. I've been up here, what, 30, almost 40 years. I've never seen the Cahaba white studies and it's still out there in the field. I can walk right up to it. And it's amazing how much is there. Cahaba white is a very old veg variety. You know, back in the seventies, we, we had a lot of veg varieties, but again, you know, keep your legumes uh, to just a percentage of the blend. The, the other thing is that the winter pea is to me another favorite, but I guess, you know, it doesn't hold up well to a lot of real grazing. So that's one of the concerns. But if you just need something with high quality at a certain time, that might be a good one. And it comes up fast and it can handle drier soils because it puts a root down pretty fast. The only problem with that is it takes a specialty rhizobium. It doesn't usually come pre-inoculated. There are very few companies that are marketing anything but Austrian. And when uh, Whistler and Lynx and I'll try Maple, when those three came out a few years ago, we trialed them and actually I thought they were better than Austrian. But the companies- well, the peas in general, yeah. Yeah, the winter peas. The winter peas right. in general were being produced out in California. And the market in the Southeast for those pea varieties just couldn't justify the cost of production in California. So most of those uh, improved varieties just fell by the wayside. Too bad. The only one I, you know, is common Austrian. I don't think Link. I think Lynx is off the market. Maybe you'll find Maple or Whistler, but I don't. I, I have trouble finding it. And I, I wonder if Ann could just remind folks about the the benefits of red clover because of its longevity. I love red clover. Let me just tell you. Kentucky clovers are late. It's back to that old, we want non-dormant red clovers. We want them to get in, get up, and get growing. So mixing crimson with red gives you an early uh, crimson clover population. And then as it starts to phase out, red clover comes in. And in the panhandle, as long as we have decent moisture, I, I can show you I have lots of red clover in Bahia grass in August non-irrigated on our farm and I've been doing it 35 years. 
Um, the other one is going to be the ball clover. We are testing a ball clover that's developed in Florida. And this is also along the ideas of a non-dormant. So just ball clover is cousin to white clover, but it's an annual prolific seed producer. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking out for the cattleman. I want it to produce seeds. So you don't have to buy it each year. It seems expensive, but, but Chris, if you ever do the economics on it, it's very cheap. It was like less than $12 an acre as a monoculture. So there's always a problem getting it established that first year or two, you don't see much. Is there anything you can say about that? Yeah, hard seed. We would reduce the hard seed because we don't need that. We need it to have a little, a little bit of hard seed so that we'll have a seed bank, but we really need the bulk of it to get up and germinate. So most of the ball clovers are, are out of Texas and they're very hard seeds. So the first year, you don't usually see much, but in the second year and third year, and then the um, there's a ranch over in Jackson County and I watch them. They've got a little bit of ball clover established and then they let the cows, they hate it when it, it was had seed in it. And then they fed the hay to the cows. So the cows spread it over a thousand acres and they never had to drill it or anything. They just let the cows uh, spread it from just you know a few acres that they started with back in the beginning. And so what, we talked about earliness of grasses. What about earliness of winter clovers? Is there a, a limit on that too, or not as much? Well, you know, my argument would be it's the same thing. You need to have cooler weather. But then if you look at the roadsides, you'll see nobody's reseeding the roadsides every year. It's coming back from reseeding. And that stuff, when it gets growing and gets started, it's usually, I watch it, usually around September and it's already getting up and that stuff looks just fabulous. But don't forget the roadsides are limed. So uh, I don't know if it's a function of good fertility and moisture running off of the roads that helps the, those clovers that naturally are reseeding get going a little bit better, but but because of diseases, I'd say still you want to stick to that October um, timeframe for planting all cold season forages. So we haven't said anything about brassicas yet. Um, that's a little bit earlier for of an option for us on, on having some maybe November, early December grazing. Do we see consistently good responses with those? I think it's expensive. I think it needs moisture. I think it needs a lot of fertility, better soils than a lot of us have. So, you know, I, I love brassicas. I really like the tall tines tubers, or what, what was that called? The daikon tubers. Uh, but, you know, until you get a frost, it's not usually sweet. I don't know. There's, it's, it's more of a management nightmare. Um, but one of the cheapest forages I ever saw, Chris, was ryegrass and purple top turnip in Escambia County. Cheapest winter forage, kept the fat cows super fat, but over in Escambia County, they had Walnut Hill where they have very rich soil. Isn't that like Southern Alabama? Very good moisture. It, they were the, um, you know, the big farming community up there. They had perfect conditions for that kind of a blend with, um, with brassicas to be successful. I've never seen it very successful anywhere else in the state. In central Florida, we were seeing that, like, not J-hook, but like an L-hook of the root where it was hitting conditions it did not like. And, and that was fairly common. So we weren't getting those big tubers either in some of those places. 
Well, very good. Well, we appreciate everyone uh, coming together today and just allowing these two great minds to share uh, some interesting information. Just update us on cool season annual forages in their uh, respective fields. So uh, appreciate everyone uh, for joining us for this episode. And we hope you all have a great rest of the week. So Thanks. It's been fun. Yep. Happy planting. <laughs> Happy planting for sure. Thank you for joining us on this Cow Talks podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, ideas, follow-ups, or comments, please reach out to us through our email, forages at ifas.ufl.edu. That is forages at ifas.ufl.edu. Or find us on our social media, uf.forages on Instagram, uf.forage team on Facebook, or UFIFAS Forages on YouTube.